Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 92. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And for a show like that, what better guest to have than who we have today? We've got John Thomas, all the way from Sweden. How are you doing, John? Doing good. Just got back into the country. Really? You just got back into the country? Where were you? You were in the U.S.? I I was in the U.S. for a bit, visiting friends and family and stuff. I was there for two and a half weeks. Uh, it's actually uh, kind of an interesting situation because to be able to get into the U.S., you have to be a U.S. citizen. And then to be able to get into Sweden, you have to have a work permit. So because I have both of those, I'm actually able to go back and forth between the two continents, which you really can't do right now unless you have a like residence here and citizenship there. Oh, man. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm lucky that I don't have a job that requires me to bounce around countries because you would be in a quite a situation right now if that's what you have to do for a living. I feel bad for yeah. a lot of people who do like BJJ seminars as part of their career because, man, like right now, that avenue is just dried up. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's actually quite a few people. And like, I think it just depends on like where you're at in the U.S. But in, in the U.S. right now, there's quite a few gyms in the South that have kind of moved forward. It's really interesting not to go too deep into that topic because I know it's like a bit political, but it's very interesting seeing the different perspectives in different regions. Because like in Sweden, the whole experience here is like this is something that we only see on TV. Mm-hmm. It's like, like nothing locked down. Like the gyms are all open. Nightclubs are open. It's like the entire, I don't know, Sweden just took this completely different approach than the rest of the world. So our training here during the lot, during the pandemic has been largely unaffected. So it was a very strange experience uh, being in Sweden during all this. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's been a pretty strange experience, I think, for for everybody. Just everyone's got such a, a different context because, yeah, like you said, every government's response to this thing has been quite different. And just the way it's impacted our training across the board has been very, very strange. But anyway, um, while we're on that note, we should probably actually introduce you. I have the feeling that most of our listeners are actually familiar with you and your work. But just in case, why don't you go ahead and let us know who you are and what you do? Um, yeah, so uh, I am a black belt in jiu-jitsu. Uh, I guess my titles, I won the worlds and pans at like purple and brown belt. I've won uh, quite a few opens at black belt. Uh, I run a YouTube channel uh, where I teach a lot of training concepts and different techniques. Uh, I moved to Gothenburg, Sweden like four, four years ago, five years ago. Uh, just I was traveling, teaching seminars. I got an offer to teach at a, a full time at a gym here. And I have a lot of like kind of like my own particular training uh, modalities that I think work best for me. So I felt like being in a situation where I could kind of control my own training and then do periodic training trips and bring people through kind of fit me better than like locking in at like a major gym. 
because mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. it gives you more control of your own training. Uh, as well as like, I kind of came up uh, in a smaller gym in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and that uh, I think gave me a lot of like groundwork for uh, taking my own responsibility into my own development uh, because I came from such a small gym. Uh, and I kind of always carried that through my career. So I think it just kind of worked out well for me here. Why did you, uh, what made you go to Sweden? Um, well, I was teaching uh, seminars throughout Europe and then I got an offer to be here full time. And it was a way for me to get paid uh, to teach, which also allows me to get paid to train. And then it just kind of worked out to, to be here because it gave me the, uh, like, as if I was to say, be at like, let's say I just went to Autos HQ, for example. Um, if I was at Autos HQ, it's harder to make a fi- uh, like income uh, yeah. with jujitsu, right? So this gave me an optimal situation where I can make a good income with jujitsu so that I could fund my own training, but then also have the flexibility to, to travel and stuff. So I kind of made a decision that I thought this would work best. Nice. And, and who, sorry, who's your professor originally? Uh, I, uh, well, my original coach was Rodrigo Vaghi in St. Louis, Missouri. I was there until Purple Belt. And then at Purple Belt, I moved to Atlanta to train full time. Uh, I had a brief period where I worked in Washington, D.C. as well, and then I quit my job. But then I uh, ended up moving to Atlanta, trained from purple to black belt with uh, a mix of Cobrinha, Jacare, and Lucas Lapri. So I probably trained the most, I guess, with Lucas over Cobrinha. Nice. And but you're you're technically not under alliance currently, are you? Um, no. I mean, so the last I have ne- since I moved there, I've never represented anyone other than alliance. So it's not like I have this um, like tight allegiance with alliance. But generally, when I compete, I still represent them. Uh, I have like a good right. relationship with like Lucas Lapri. I haven't talked to Jacques Ray in a while, but like, I mean, I have a good relationship with them. It's not like we're at odds or anything. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, for me, I first became aware of you, John, about a. I'm not sure exactly how long ago, maybe a year or two ago when Matt just wouldn't shut up about this John Thomas's guys videos that he's putting out and how they're excellent conceptual breakdowns. And I thought, man, this guy's one of us. <laughs> and yeah. I recall a while back, we crossed paths on that online jujitsu summit that was done when COVID first started. Ah, yeah, to break I remember out. that. I remember that. Yeah. 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 You were, you were one of the panelists on, and you had your own seminar and we had a separate one or two as well. And, and I've been meaning to chat with you for a while because I think that the the way that you think about jujitsu and the way that you present it is probably something that would really resonate with our audience, which is effectively a, a heavy emphasis on concepts and principle thinking versus just rote memorization of techniques. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on that note, something that you brought up as a topic for the show, which I think is an amazing idea, is how to integrate new tactics into your game. So I think everyone can relate to this problem where, you know, you see some new move and you think to yourself, man, I should start using that. That would probably work very well for me. And you drill it one or two times and maybe you try it in sparring one or two times and it just doesn't really stick. And a lot of the time that's just because you didn't approach the whole situation with a plan. You just kind of did what made sense. And I think the challenge, especially as you get more experienced in jujitsu, is it gets harder 
to integrate new things into your game. First of all, because, you know, whether you want to or not, you sort of close your mind, unfortunately, as you get experienced in anything. And that's something that we all have to fight as we develop expertise. Mm -hmm. But additionally, when you get experienced and you're good at something, now there's expectations, right? I mean, if you're a white belt and you roll onto the mat, no one expects anything from you and you don't have any competitive advantage. So anything you learn is going to be new and novel. Whereas if you're a brown or a black belt, man, you decide you want to start trying to use a new technique, you're going to be like white or blue belt level at it for the first while. And it's hard to stick with something when you know you have better tools in your toolbox (laughs) that you're much more equipped to use. So a big part of learning a new technique is accepting that you're going to be bad at it for a while. And that gets, I think, more challenging up the chain as you get more experienced. I'd be curious to know if you agree with that assessment. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think It depends on how you're setting up your training as well. Uh, Like for sure, if you, you know, say say your spider guard is like your best game, you're like the best in the world at it. And then you try to introduce yourself to playing De La Hiva and it's completely foreign to you. You're obviously going to perform much worse when you try De La Hiva. So if you go into a regular session, training session where you're doing like normal rounds, uh, then if you're measuring your progress for the day on your performance versus other people, which we all do, whether we want to or not subconsciously, everyone's trying to like perform good, then it's going to be hard to commit to trying a new position because you're going to underperform. Right. So, you know, but if you set your training up where I have a lot of, I always have like an intent behind my training. So if I'm trying to develop my daily Hiva, I'll go in the gym that day and, you know, I'll pretty much do only specific training from De La Hiva. I'll start with the ankle and whatever sub position I want to work on. And my only training is from there. And for me, I've like completely wiped out the idea of like belts and performance. You know, I'll roll with a guy who's like a world champion in my double sleeve and do great. And then I'll roll with a guy who's like a blue belt. And then he'll like have some weird, awkward movement that's like kind of uh, foreign And then like that can actually be a bit difficult. Right. But then like closed garb works on him super easy. And then with this guy, you know, so it's not even like, you know, people always think in terms of belt levels, like, Oh, this guy's a black belt. He's supposed to be this good. Like, honestly, it's just, it's just movements and patterns. Like sometimes when you go, uh, people often have this experience where they'll train with a white belt sometimes. And like, you'll have a position that's working great competitive level purple belt and you'll go with a white belt and they can throw it for a loop a little bit because they're doing Mm -hmm. such abstract crazy things that it can be confusing i actually like that though because i like to understand the positions to such depth that i mean i even know those really erratic crazy movements but yeah long story short for sure it's normal to feel that uh that's why i like specific training so much it allows you to uh separate that I've had that situation the same where I train with a black belt or a brown belt and they move the way I expect. (laughs) And that's a very different challenge from training with an untrained person who can move in ways that are not smart, but it can still happen. And if you're not ready for it, then, you know, what do you do? I mean, the thing is white belts, man, they do the darndest things, you know, they move in ways that do not preserve the alignment of their body. They dive headfirst into submission. Sometimes they don't understand how to keep themselves safe. They're not aware of what positions you're supposed to do. And sometimes just being novel and unpredictable is a strategy in and of itself. And if, yeah, I mean, they'll usually not like, the reason that like they can't win is because people like have good guard retention and things like that. Mm-hmm. So ultimately they may, they may fluster an otherwise smooth position, like where 
you normally play that system and it's very smooth and everything's clean. You don't have to use much energy, but they may do some wild thing that makes you have to kind of like be less smooth and a bit abrupt. And then usually people can fall back on their retention. I mean, I feel like what you're trying to do is like develop understanding. So even if I go with like a white belt and I'm doing a collar sleeve system that works very well versus world-class black belts, if they do some goofy ass thing where they're like yeah. stepping backwards in an awkward way, if it causes some disruption for me, I actually really like sticking with it until I solve that weird solution just for depth, you know, and every now and then like a white belt will do a movement and like the whole rest of what they're doing is terrible, but that one movement can actually be annoying. And if you have like a logical <laughs> understanding of your own game, you can actually intelligently take that little move and add it into your system in a smart way. And you can actually learn from that, you know, 100%, 100%. And I think that's a massive mistake that people make in jujitsu and you hit it on right on the head earlier where you talked about how you need to kind of remove this notion of belts and you know essentially rank because sometimes really good insights come from the least expected sources including white belts i mean i've had situations where you know i'll catch some white belt in a triangle or something and he'll just do some crazy thing where he'll like use the hand in the triangle to like try to pin me down by the neck. <laughs> I'll think like, okay, this is technically not a good idea, but man, if you don't expect it, it actually kind of works, right? There's a lot of weird insights you can get from the untrained because although they're not skilled, they also don't have these habits and patterns beaten into them over the years. So in some ways their mind is freer to try new things. And every once in a while, you know, it's like they say, even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> and that is very much the case with white belts. You, I have personally learned a lot just by rolling with white belts and being exposed to these unpredictable things that I didn't think they were going to do. I um, was hanging out with my buddy last night who's a brown belt and we were talking about uh, just basically injuries and how like I got a bunch of injuries they're adding up he's got injuries to you know both of our knees currently dealing with meniscus issues and I'm just like fuck like remember when you 10 years ago when we were uh, you know blue fresh blue belts and you know you just go hard in the gym and like if you get an injury it heals within a few weeks and then you kind of forget about it because it doesn't linger but now now injuries are lingering longer now that we're older and, and I'm more sensitive to different foods and inflammation and things like that. And we were discussing basically what you guys are talking about, where a lower ranked belt might offer you a reaction that you're totally not used to. And like you said, John, basically, you know, the majority of the stuff they could be doing could be hot garbage, but maybe they do a technique that you, you actually see some value in, or they created an angle that you weren't expecting before. And it's funny how we, we tend to think about how experience is kind of, uh, it's a positive thing. It's all, it almost becomes an attribute after a while being uh, experienced. But in a way, I don't know about you, I notice now that I'm, you know, it basically at master's division age, and I've been, you know, been doing it for over 10 years now. It's like, well, I'm more cautious in my approach to competition. And in a way, it kind of even holds me back because well, I'm more aware and, and to be honest, more cautious with my body than I was at Blue Belt. And I have the experience, so I'm not as wild as I would have been as a competitor at Blue Belt. So in a way, you know, experience is, uh, is kind of an attribute, but in, in other ways, lack of experience can also be an attribute, whether, you know, you're just kind of like Steve mentioned, you don't have the same bad habits that maybe you've developed 
or maybe you're just wild and crazy or, or you're literally just ignorant to the injuries that can occur. And so you, you put forth more of a tenacious effort than you might, you know, if you have like 10, 15 years in the game. I would add on to that and I would say that you see a really interesting situation when you look at the guys who are really experienced. Like once you've got, you know, a whole bunch of stripes on your black and red belt, this presents a different problem because, and Matt, I know that we agree on this. Sometimes you watch these old dogs who are doing instructionals and you look at their technique and you're like, that's just not fundamentally sound. It's just not going to work. But none of your students are going to question you on it because you're this master at jujitsu. And I kind of feel like once you get to that level of experience and the gulf between you and your students in terms of mat time becomes that large, people just won't question you anymore. And you get entrenched in these old thinking models. And before you know it, you wind up with these guys who they've been around forever, but they just haven't adopted anything new in the last 30 years. And this is, I think, one of the challenges you see when you're studying under someone who's really senior is it sort of comes across, at least from watching their YouTube videos, that a lot of these guys have a really closed mind and they don't always add things to their game like you would when you're more junior. I think one thing that helps is working in phases of like what you're trying to develop because you can, you can pick a position and you can go infinitely deep on it. I find that by locking yourself into a position that you need, you want to uh, develop on like, okay, I want to develop my double sleeve and you define the training as I'm starting in double sleeve. I'm going to spar from here. Then the depth of how much you progress will build based off of that position. So kind of the way that I see jujitsu is that like I break it. If anyone's listened to my content before, you know, I like break everything down into these like separate mini games. Right. And when you're trying to like uh, develop an open guard, you want to like develop like a collar sleeve, a double sleeve. You kind of develop each of the individual grips that you got that you could have and if you could imagine like your game is almost like a spider web right and then it's like you can kind of like pick a like a part here on the right pick a part here on the left pick a part here in the middle eventually as you kind of fill in the knowledge of each of those positions eventually they start to get so large that they start to intercept with each other and that creates kind of like an open game right so i think uh if you're really good at one thing and then you're always trying to build off of it uh, sometimes it becomes like you get diminishing returns, right? So then mm-hmm. by picking like a random other topic, so like you have a good double sleeve, for example, and then going, okay, well, I don't know what to do if I have collar ankle. Locking yourself in that for a bit will make you start to develop that skill set, right? And then you develop a collar sleeve, right? On a separate thing, right? And you get good at that patch, right? And then you get good at double sleeve. Well, now when you have double sleeve, you can switch from double sleeve to collar sleeve really quick. And then from collar sleeve, you can switch from collar sleeve to collar ankle really quick. And then they, it starts to fill in the hole. I think one of the biggest things that I think gives people a hard time is that they, they're almost, uh, a lot of people are trying to like build a game where they're trying to like imagine like this is my game and I'm trying to build off of it. Rather, I think people should approach jujitsu almost like university. It's like you have different classes, right? You have like English, you have math, you have like history or, you know, whatever, you know, and you just take those classes. So if people could rather than see rather than trying to imagine their game as a whole, just imagine it as separate skill sets. I think that alleviates a lot of that tension in performance. Yeah, as you develop uh, all those separate skill sets, then your game will, like a normal role just becomes automatic. Like for me, there's really no difference between how I roll and how a white belt rolls in a sense, right? In that 
all you can really do is when someone comes at you is like respond, right? So the difference between a white belt and like a black belt or just someone uh, better than a white belt is that what responses come to my my head automatically are more useful than what comes to a white belt. So a white belt or someone who's never trained before, when someone comes at them with their hand, they have an automatic response. When someone comes at me with their hand forward, I have an automatic response. My automatic responses are more useful because I've trained them over time. So if you develop all these individual situations and formats of control, then no matter how the guy comes at you, you'll have uh, useful options. But like, let's say that you've developed, uh, you have, you're really good at um, double sleeve, like controlling both sleeves, one hand on each sleeve, right? Uh, if you're really, really good at that, but then the guy approaches you in a normal role with his hands back and his leg forward, you, you're stuck chasing for the sleeve, right? But if you've developed a really good like single leg grip or ankle grip, then when he presents that at you, it'll be easy to grab it, right? So by isolating everything, it makes it the normal role eventually just becomes automatic because you, no matter what they present at you, you have some uh, system that you can run in your head. Yeah, I really like that approach that you take. You know how you sort of coined the term mini games. Uh, I, I really think that's, that's an effective way to train. I've adopted a lot of that just watching the, the footage that you have, the way that you teach, um, because I think that it, it encourages predictable reactions from your opponent rather than, you know, just trying to do your techniques. You know, like back when I used to train at this other gym, I'll, I'll admit the training format and methodology was not exactly the most advanced, let's say, you know, you'd go in, you would, uh, you know, it's kind of cringy, but you'd go in and, and roll to warm up. And then when it comes time to do drills, it's like, you know, you're not really drilling with purpose. You're more just drilling to get reps, which I think is, there is a place for that. But if we want to create, you know, reactions and actually understand what, what the goals are and how yeah, can- I mean, you need to have, you need to have resistance. I think a good middle zone for people, cause like, uh, also, like, if you go in with, like, full resistance, then it's too much. You can't process it. So, like, what I like if I'm in, uh, like, a development phase is more what I would call, like, conversational uh, specific sparring, where it's, like, you have the options of, like, pause, slow motion, rewind, fast forward, uh, mm, where that's you can kind that. of, like, like, if I'm trying to develop a game from uh, scratch, like, if I'm starting in a position and, uh, you know, let's say I'm trying to develop a double sleeve and I don't know much about double sleeve. Okay. I start there. And then as soon as I start, the guy like deadlifts really hard and I lose the position, right? Then that I identified a problem. Now we could keep going. And then I'm like, ah, oh, I'm all everywhere. And I get past and then bottom aside. But like, it's useful that as soon as that problem happens and he gets out, I call, like, uh, I call it a sequence, right? Like one attempt of him trying to pass and or me trying to sweep and submit. That's like one sequence, okay? So we're training and we do we run a sequence, right? So I start in double sleeve or collar sleeve or whatever position you're working, right? He tries to pass, I try to sweep, submit, go. Okay, we go, we run the sequence. Okay, now he got out. Okay, after he gets out, stop. Okay, rewind. What happened? Let's go slow motion. See, boom, right here. Okay, the guy deadlifted, freeze. What do I do here? And I'll literally do this with my partner. Like, and I'll be like, okay, what happened here? Huh? How does this feel? Okay. Can I, does this help? Does this help? What about this? What about that? And I, and I play with it and look for a solution, right? Now, how you come up with the solutions, that's the main bulk, right? If you want to develop a position, you start in whatever, collar sleeve. I start there, I spar, and then the problem arises. Now, how you find the solution to the problems, that's the most important thing. And there's four ways to find a solution to a problem, uh, three to four. One is asking a coach 
another training partner or like, you know, if you're at a seminar or whoever, right? So asking someone. However, uh, if you don't have access to someone who knows that position, which is often going to be the case, even if your head coach is like Rafael Mendez, he, he, Hoffa doesn't like deep half guard much. I don't either, right? So I couldn't give you a good answer on deep half guard. So if you're working a position, and especially if you train at a small gym in like the Midwest or something, you probably don't have access to a world-class coach to give you the answers. So often that's not a reliable one. Okay, so if you don't have uh, someone to ask a question about, then you can watch competition video. That's a major one. Competition video, or well, actually before competition video, you could uh, go through an instructional. So, but the thing with instructionals is you got to find people that you trust their instructionals because some people uh, are great competitors, but I, I know, because I've known a lot of people who've done instructionals, would be like, well, I needed to put more techniques in, so I just kind of made one up, or it was kind of cool. You know, so I spent a lot of my career trying to make techniques from instructionals work, and sometimes the guy explains it differently than he actually does, and that can leave you trying to force a square peg into a round hole, right, where you kind of end up not being sure if it works right. So then that's why I like competition footage, because competition footage you yeah. know it works because if a world-class black belt got submitted with this move he didn't want it to happen right so you can kind of be assured that there's some validity to this technique right so right. i watch a lot of competition video the fourth one which is what people should probably be doing uh the least in the beginning is creativity right but that's where you get to eventually like if i'm you know world-class at this position if i have a world-class collar sleep and a position keeps occurring and I can't find out a solution to it, and I'm one of the best in the world at that position already, then you start getting creative and coming up with your own adaptations and stuff. Uh, but you need to utilize all four of those. So usually when someone's trying to pick a new position to learn, I would say the first thing is find your experts on that position. So say you're developing a uh, collar sleeve from scratch. Find your experts. Maybe Tommy Langaker, Nicholas Mergali, Espen Matisson, me, you know, I, I don't have a ton of competition footage of me using collar sleeve, but I have a lot of instructional stuff, you know, so you find like your four or five people you want to listen to about that position. Okay. So you watch a lot of competition footage, you get like this broad overview of what the position's about, gives you wide perspective of what it's about. Then you're going to start sparring in a, a set parameter of starting in collar sleeve, trying to sweep or submit from there, and they're going to try to pass. And then you just keep running those sequences over and over and over. Every time a problem arises, try to come up with a solution, reference competition footage, asking questions and doing that, and just spend hours in that position, right? After you spend like 10 to 20 hours in that position, just arbitrarily, you're going to start to recognize all these patterns and problems. You develop that, that level of awareness. And then at some point, uh, and this goes back to what we were talking about before, uh, at some point, uh, there's like, you could work on it forever, right? You could do collar sleeve for a thousand hours if you wanted, right? Um, and there's always another response you didn't think about, like, like we talked about with the white belt. Like there may be some weird response that you didn't account for. So then you start to get diminishing returns. So then it's best to switch to a new position. But eventually, after you run through like six, seven positions and develop all these, it's good to, to go back through again, right? So I'm always, anyone who follows my content, uh, if you check my stuff out, uh, if you look at my game a year later, if I'm working on those positions, it will be completely different. Like, so a lot of things I teach in collar sleeve uh, now that I taught a year ago, I'm like, no, I don't do it that way anymore. I don't do it this way anymore because of this is because my depth of knowledge uh, increased. But that's usually how I recommend people doing it. You just keep cycling through positions and going back through. But there's always more to learn. 
Yeah, and, and I really... think that one of the nice things that you're touching on there, which actually is, is backed by science, is the idea that sometimes the best way to learn is to shuffle the deck and switch to new things. It's We've talked yeah. about it on the show before. It's called interleaving. And basically the proposal is that if you spend all of your time just on one discipline, you won't learn as effectively as if you shake it up and you alternate between multiple possibly related disciplines. So you yeah, instead of trying to learn case. like AAA, then BBB, then ccc you would learn like abc 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 absolutely yeah yeah, and then you can start to see the connections between them and of course in open guard especially right in in one of your areas of expertise one of the things about open guard is that it is so fluid that you kind of have to be able to have an answer for everything that your opponent does you can't really just assume you're gonna get your collar sleeve configuration that you want and be able to lock your opponent in place and force them to do the guard you want Um, and that's a mistake i made in the early days with open guard which is i would think okay i want to be like a Della Hiva guy with this particular grip set. And I try to get good at that and force that to work. And it wasn't until much later that I realized, actually, you know what? I kind of have to let go of the control here because I can't guarantee my opponent is going to do what I want them to do. So I've got to learn other variations and it's okay if I want to funnel people back to Della Hiva guard. But if I lose the setup that I want, I've got to have another game so that I can bring the train back onto the tracks the way that I want it to go. Right. And that's something that took me quite a while to learn, which is the importance of understanding diminishing returns. And when you're good enough at one position and now your focus should shift to learning other related disciplines. Now, a big part of what you're talking about here is kind of the idea of having purpose-driven training sessions where, you know, you've got a goal for what you want to do when you go and enroll. You might even have a goal for what you want to achieve in an, in an individual round. And I'd be curious to learn a little bit more about how you structure that. Like if you, for example, have some new uh, novel hand configuration or guard that you want to play, like when you go in to set that up for yourself, what does the mental process look like? And how do you kind of like structure, okay, here are my goals for how I'm going to train this. Here's what I'm going to do. How do you make that work? So this one's kind of a tricky one, right? Uh, So there's two things that matter. One is like, you need to have, you need to have like kind of a logical approach to how to learn it, but you also have to have inspiration and passion. So I, I trust myself. I've been trained long enough and I trust my gut uh, and my understanding and what I'm inspired by. So that changes day to day. So if I'm on a huge like creative flow on the double sleeve and it's just like, there's a lot of new shit clicking and I'm like, man, this is really evolving. I'm really fired up about it. And then I go into the gym and I'm working it. And then, you know, in the warm up process, we're kind of light rolling and then some new collar sleeve thing starts to click. And I feel like that's like a really big thing for me. I might follow that lead. Right. So I don't know when, uh, the next big breakthrough is going to come because often the things that massively revolutionize a position will be weird abstract details like, oh, palm down instead of palm up in this specific situation, right? But most of the time it's palm up. But now only in this specific situation, palm down significantly better. And like, there's a lot of weird little things like, oh, okay, the knee pressure like this works really good here, right? And like, so I'll be working a position and I just kind of feel it out day by day. A lot of people can't necessarily do what I do because I'm in charge of the training here. So I have a very open environment, right? So I may go in 
and be start light rolling and then just kind of roll around till I get the collar sleeve. And then I'm like, man, like this feels like what I need to work on that day. And then I'll go deep into that. And I'm watching video all the time. So if I watch video before coming into training and I get really excited about a position, then I may go, you do that that day in class. So you got to follow your inspiration because I could say, pick a position, stay on it for four weeks. Once you complete that now, four more weeks in the next position, you could do it that way. And that's fine, especially if you're inspired by it. But if you are not inspired about the position you're working on, that's, you know, you're not going to do it. Right. So I, I think you have to balance out functionality. So certainly pick a position and go in deep on it and work on it for a bit, but also follow your inspirations and creative flow. Because if you don't have that and you're not inspired, it's, it's hard. Like for me, when I get on the mat, like, and I start working on something, people got to like, they got to escape the room because I'm just going to keep going for like four hours. So, yeah, that's a really, um, really good point because I think a mistake a lot of people make when they're exposed to new techniques is they just assume that like everything will work for everybody. And it's just a matter of like choosing your loadout basically in terms of what you want to use. The reality is though, there are mitigating factors. Of course, you know, one of them is body attributes. Um, Some techniques just work better for different body types. But another thing that a lot of people don't talk about is inspiration. And I've definitely felt this firsthand where I see a technique for the first time and immediately I think to myself, this is something that I should be using. And if I have that moment it makes it a lot easier for me to adapt and start using that in my game. And it just feels like I'm immediately better at something like that because it's resonated with me at kind of an internal level versus a technique where I look at it and I just think, Oh man, that, you know, I don't think that's for me. Like I've kind of learned to go with my instincts on this now where when I see a technique and I, you know, even if the instructor is talking it up and how it's so successful at the world-class level, if I look at this and just think like, man, that's just not a Steve technique. <laughs> you know, I've kind of learned to trust my intuition on that. And even at white belt, I was having those moments. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would say that like, that's where uh, it's difficult because what people want is just a straight answer, but yes. like, I can't, you can't get a straight answer on this. I, I think you need both, right? Like the, the two extremes would be like, there's like uh, the creative people who are so creative. Like I see people who are like, blue belts like inventing their own new guard and they're like wow they're all all, like out there but then like at the end of the day when they spar they're getting killed right yeah so you gotta like you gotta temper creative inspiration like creativity and like logic and structure and you need both right so if i get on a creative whim where i'm like oh man this is working for me and you know and then like i go test it on people and i thought it was working it's not working you got to like really reassess like maybe this shit doesn't work maybe i need to mm-hmm. you know and I, and then in the reverse sometimes like i'll be like you know ah this thing's not for me it's not quite what i want so, you know but like logically i know it would probably be good for me i might do it a little bit and see if the inspiration comes mm-hmm. so you kind of need you know that's a hard one because it's like you got to find that balance between like logical organization, but also creativity. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. And I, I like what you're talking to about kind of creative restraint with more junior people, because of course, I'm, we've all, we're all guilty of this. I mean, I remember, quote unquote, inventing techniques at like blue belt level and thinking I was yeah. so awesome, right? And maybe I was able to get some false positives because I could make them work against other blue belts. But yeah, for sure. 
you abandon that pretty quickly, right? The standard for creating a technique is much higher when you get to black belt and you've got to be much more diligent about it. The way that I would probably equate it is look at what's involved in like doing a PhD thesis. You know, if you are out there and you're preparing a PhD thesis, basically what you're trying to do is create new knowledge that has never been discovered before, right? You're ideally going to be the first person who's ever figured this out. You're adding new knowledge to the system so that other people can benefit from it. However, to get to the point where you can do a PhD thesis, you've got to be in school for years and years learning how this stuff works. You're not in there doing those big complicated studies when you're in second year university. It takes a long time to build up to that. So, I think it is important to make sure that when blue belts and such, when they get really creative, I mean, it's okay for them to be creative. Sometimes amazing things come out of blue belts. I mean, Sean Williams invented Sean Williams guard, I think when he was a blue belt, but at the same time, the reality is there's a much greater percentage chance that you're going to create something that's fundamentally flawed. And at that stage in your game, you're probably best off trying to absorb information from experts rather than trying to create your own information. Yeah, it's just like, it's just the point of like efficiency, right? I mean, it might be that someone is a white belt and invents some crazy new guard that works out, but probability says no, right? So usually, absolutely, the the start of, of the journey to mastery is first learn to understand what others have created. Don't be bound by it, but like understand it. As you start to develop a reasonable level of understanding, because it's just such a time-saving tool. Because, like, you know, if, if a guy can make this system work well versus a world-class black belt, there's a lot of things about it that are functionally good. So take it, borrow the ladder, use it to get up to speed quick. And now that you have all that, you can break the rules. Then you can start going, okay, well, maybe I could do this. Maybe here you could do that. And, like, you know, and you start doing that. So I think all positions function that way. So like right now, if I wanted to start developing a deep half guard game really in depth, I wouldn't just start developing it. I would like look at all the best half guard, deep half guard players out there and then try to emulate, learn the techniques they're using, play with it, spar with a bunch of people and get like competent at it. And as I'm starting to like perform very well versus world-class guys in that position, and I've kind of have like a good understanding of largely what the other people are doing, then I might start innovating a bit. So I think that process, if you could just imagine not doing it for jiu-jitsu as a whole, but by position, right? So it's like mm-hmm. my deep half guard is in the infancy stage and then my double sleeve and collar sleeve are in the you know PhD phase and you do that by position, right? One of the big things that I think people do wrong in jiu-jitsu is that, uh, and it goes back to like you talked about like with the, you know, rotating through like multiple positions at a time and like cross-threading, like a, you know, not AAA, but ABC, ABC, like that. I think that is probably what most people do wrong. It's like, they think that there's like this huge, like I get the idea, which is like, if I just only do A, I'm going to be the best in the world today and no one's going to stop it. But like most of the people who become really successful as entrepreneurs, they have multi-skill sets, right? It's not, they're just the best at this one thing. Like I said, they're the best at like, you know, look at like, um, like, I don't know, Naval Ravikant is a guy I like to listen to a lot. And uh, they were on a podcast, they were talking about like, you know, you can try to be number one at something, or if you're in the top 25% at three things, you know, then you're probably the only person in the world who's in the top 25% at swimming, programming, and opera, you know? Now, I don't know how those three would connect necessarily, but like, if you pick like, for example, me doing a YouTube jujitsu thing, right? Like to become successful at that, you have to be good at jujitsu. I'm, I'm very good at jujitsu, 
right? But there's other very good people at jujitsu. But then you also have to be very analytical to actually organize these systems. That's another complicated thing, right? Because someone can be a great fighter, but not very analytical and rigorous, right? But then you also need to be like good with public speaking and like carry your voice well and be confident in front of a crowd and like that, those kind of things. Those three things together make this career uh, mode for me work better, right? There's other people that are like the best in the world of jujitsu, but they can't speak well and they can't do that, right? So similarly in jujitsu, right? You can try to be like, I have the best spider guard in the world, but then like you might fight someone and they just never give you the second sleeve and it throws you for a loop. So by having like, like three or four skill sets, sometimes it's easier to do. And then as a bonus, you also get that boost from uh, your learning. I, I, I've certainly, logically, it didn't make sense to me, but my experience has certainly been that when I mix up the positions I'm learning, the speed of everything goes up. Like I mm -hmm. work on my collar sleeve, my double sleeve gets better. It's very, very counterintuitive. And that's something too that I'm still kind of struggling with, which is that there comes a point when you are better suited learning other things in order to get better at the original thing. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, yeah like usually by the time you get back to it, if you do like, if you're working on collar sleeve in the beginning, and then you're like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, it's not perfect, but I'm pretty good. Then you do double sleeve for a bit. Then you do collar ankle. Then you do close guard. Then you do some passing. And then you go back to collar sleeve. It kind of stirred all this stuff up. And then like it allows you to come at it fresh again. And then you make, usually you break your barriers you couldn't before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That sort of uh, incremental learning, you know, I find when I'm, we're discussing, you know, we're discussing learning new systems. Like uh, about a year ago, I started studying Keenan's lapel guard. Never used worm guard before it always kind of interested me and there's a lot of material you know it's like it, there's tons of stuff tons of different positions to learn and different avenues that you need to learn and you need to know how to uh, what to do based on the, your opponent's reaction and how you can funnel their reactions and blah 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 and it's like I remember you know the first time I, I sort of watched it I you know you, you know what it's like the first time you watch an instructional it's like it's just almost impossible to retain everything. In fact, it is, it is impossible, especially when there's that much material. But then when you go and you try it and, you know, something works and you encounter a problem and you encounter a reaction you expect, then you encounter a reaction you didn't expect. And then, you know, after you try it for maybe a week or whatever, you go back and you, you watch some of the footage again. And then you notice things that you, you didn't notice the first time or you remember things that didn't stick the first time. And then when you go and apply it again in the gym, it's like a new layer. You know, you already have sort of that basic base level knowledge, and then you can add new details and sort of build onto the system from there. So it's like every time you go back and, and sort of pay extra attention to it, you pick up new stuff. And I find that's a really yeah, good way sure. to, to learn uh, systems as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, I think something that gives them a hard time with learning a new system is that they're trying to define it too soon. Like they want it to be like super structured where it's like, okay, you know, step one, step two, or if they do this, I have the, and like, it's all organized, but like, it's, uh, or like they're defining things like always have the knee this way, right? Or like always have posture. Like they're looking for these hard rules, but like, especially when you're early on in a position, usually trying to lock onto something it'll, it'll mess you up uh, more because you haven't like, you don't have a good enough understanding on usually the way I explain it is when I teach a system, like if I teach a collar sleeve system or a double sleeve system, that's just something that I created in that moment as a snapshot to explain to people how I currently see the position. But like, as soon as I make that instructional, 
I drop all of those things as hard rules. But people will learn what I'm showing in a system like, this is a hard rule. You always do this. And I'm like, yeah. no, no, no. Right now, I find that to be effective. It works very well. But it might be that if you do the opposite of what I'm saying, and then you have this other thing calculated in that, that it, you know, that ends up better. No one knows. Like, like things go uh, because it's very, very new and there's so many patterns. So like I always say what I'm showing now, this is currently how I'm seeing it. This is currently what I find to be the most effective, but it will change in the future. If you're new to a position and you're learning it, the first thing you want to do is uh, the first few weeks like keep a super open mind and just get raw data. Just get a lot of mat time in the position. Like, oh, the guy like killed my leg and passed here. That's interesting. Okay, when I put my foot here, that's interesting. And you just want raw data coming in, coming in, coming in. And then as you get all this raw data, you start to notice patterns. But people way too early, they want someone to tell them like, oh, when you're here, you always do the knee this way. And then they have it like a hard rule in their head, like gravity, you know, and like you have to always do the knee this way. And then like the, the coach comes by and then the, they're like, I have my knee this way. I'm like, oh, no, no, don't do that there. And they're like, but you said always have the knee there. I'm like, yeah, most of the time. But actually if his guy's hands here, you can't do that. Right. Then all yeah. of a sudden it's like, like they just, they held themselves back. So I always say when I'm teaching, take what I'm saying is like 80% true. It's like a guideline. But if you try to lock on it, like a law of physics, that's been like proved that's perfect. Usually you restrict yourself so much. It's hard to get the, uh, to see the full, like to evolve. Yeah. That's yeah. a really, really awesome point. And something that I have been guilty of myself. I mean, I remember Me when too. I was new at jujitsu, I was trying to figure out like, okay, how do I hold people down in side control? And I remember at some point my instructor said, oh, well, you, you know, you put your hand here and you put your other hand here. And for a long time, I thought what he was saying was, this is the way it must always be done. <laughs> like your hands yeah. must be in these positions. And I didn't realize that, okay, inside control, like you can kind of have your hands wherever makes sense. It just comes down to context and what your opponent is doing. And I was looking for a hard and fast, like bit, like you said, basically like a law of physics answer that I could just hold on to for certainty. Whereas what I was getting was actually just an example of like, here are how in this particular situation, if you apply the principles correctly, you would put your hands here. But that's just one option. And just in this situation, it's not a, a hard and fast rule by any stretch. And I think a mistake that a lot of instructors make is when they teach students, they make it sound like everything is a, like an undisputable law about what you should do. Whereas in reality, yeah. there are core governing principles at play. And what you're showing on any given day is just a particular example in one particular moment. And I think that does make it hard for people to adopt stuff because they, they see this one example and they put way too much weight behind it in terms of yeah. thinking of it like a universal truth or something. For sure. And I, I think jiu-jitsu is like far more complicated than people think. Oh, like <laughs> one, one thing that people often are looking for is like, they're like, I'll have people do a private. They're like, just like, what are the basic principles? Like, what do I need to know? You know, just like, what are the things? If I just understood that, I get it. And like, people like this idea of like principles rather than like details, but like, and it depends on what you mean by principle. Cause what I'm saying right now is a principle. Uh, but like in general, I don't like principles at all. Okay. I like positions uh, and systems because a principle, uh, and it, again, it just depends on, it's a semantic thing, but uh, by principles, what I mean is people are looking for things like always have base, like have like your, you know, elbow and knee connected, like elbow tight, always elbow tight. Like things like that are like, the most damaging thing for most people's jujitsu because there's 
always a counterpoint. And like, at, like there's so much abstract, weird way to do things. So like maybe the most balanced way to stand will get you ankle locked. If you know what a coyote ankle lock is, if you deadlift and have a super strong posture, you're going to get ankle locked. Right. But then if you defend it by like, by doing a certain thing, it may make the deal a hook stronger and exposes you to a barren bolo. Right. Yeah. So then like, there's no fundamental principle that you can follow. That's going to account for all the parameters. Like if, if the sole purpose was do not get knocked over. Okay. Maybe you could find a way that standing and these, these fundamental principles always work well for base, but the best way to stand may get you triangle choked. And the best yeah. way to stop the choke may get you tripod swept. So there's no fundamental principle that's going to connect all this stuff. Furthermore, it depends on the prerequisite skills you have, right? Like, let's say that you have a really tricky bottom of side control reverse triangle choke, okay? Like, there's guys who are good at that, right? Well, who's to say it's wrong if you know your position well and you know your opponent to let them pass so you can hit that and choke them out? That's legitimate, right? Like Majid Hage choked everyone out with his yeah. baseball bat choke, <laughs> right? So it, it doesn't mean that like, now I would say where that might be wrong for the Majid Hage thing is if he's doing it in a way that he's guaranteed that if the guy knows how to defend it, he gives up such a bad position, it's non-recoverable. Uh, so you just have to know your game and know what you're doing. If I knew 100% that when I go for this Majid Hage choke, that the worst case I miss it and he ends up on my back, but I'm so good at back escape that I know I'm always going to get out. Then yeah, you can do it. Right. But if you know that your back escape's not good and you're going for it, you know, if the guy knows these, what this one trick, it's easy to defend, then you're, you know, you're making a poor decision. So there are no rules. You can literally do whatever you want, as yeah. long as you understand your own depth of understanding. And that's different for everyone because I can say, oh yeah, go here and here. And this is a great position. And then if the guy does something else, you have to switch guard. But if you don't know that other guard to switch to, that doesn't work for you. So it's all about your prerequisites. So you should focus on seeking to understand everything. And that's to me, the best way to use your training. Yeah. When I started teaching lo locally at a purple belt and then, uh, started getting really into instruction as a brown belt. And I realized I was making this mistake where I would make these hard, fast rules and make these, it's almost like I, at some point you gain some expertise in something and then you think, you know, everything. And then you realize down the road, you're like, Oh my God, like there's some cringeworthy moments in, in my instruction where I may have made these hard, fast rules and been like, okay, the knee always has to go here or whatever. And now I have gathered enough experience that I realize that these rules aren't really good things to stand by necessarily. And it's not good to teach everyone, everyone. Oh, well, you know, when I play Delahiva, I always want to point my knee this way or whatever, because yeah, I mean, it's uh, like, you will, imagine, you will sort of give people m misinformation at times. Yeah. Like could Bernardo Faria coach, you know, uh, Hoffa Mendez and could Hoffa Mendez coach Bernardo Faria? How would that work? Like completely like, different I, styles. Right, Hoffa couldn't go in there and be like, no, Bernardo, what are you doing? You should be in De La Hiva. No, Bernardo does deep half guard, and he's great with it, right? So he can't, like, it's like, yeah. that's often people will message me to, like, look at their match and give them uh, corrections. I'm like, I can't. I cannot correct you and watch your match because I don't know your prerequisite skill. I don't know what you're trying to play. I don't know your prerequisite skills. It's impossible for me to look at someone and really be like, oh, you should have done this. It all depends on context. So when I work with people online, I go, okay, send me video of you 
sparring from collar sleeve, I'm going to send you the video set of the series that I like to run from collar sleeve. You send me a video of you sparring from collar sleeve with the objective of, you know, trying to play this system. Then I can analyze that and give you exact detail on how I would have done things different. But that's a very contained, isolated thing. But I can't look at someone rolling arbitrarily and be like, oh, you should have done, oh, you should have grabbed a sleeve there and gone to spider guard. He's like, well, I don't know spider guard. Well, I can't tell him to do that. Then maybe grabbing the collar was a better decision. It's an interesting discussion to have for sure. I mean, I'm personally a big fan of principles and principled thinking, mostly because it gives you a tool to organize your thoughts and to kind of reflect and discover learnings that you didn't know were there. But the mistake a lot of people make when they talk about things like principles and mental models is they think they are rules, but they're not. They're guideposts or suggestions, right? There are going to be exceptions. To your point earlier, like it's not like gravity. If you're talking about the elbow-knee connection, it's a good thing to understand because in the majority of cases, it's probably a good idea, but there's definitely exceptions, right? I mean, heck, when you're standing up a lot of the time, you're not always maintaining an elbow-knee connection if the other guy is standing up as well. So there's always exceptions and context is everything. So I when- mean, like, well, for example, with the elbow-knee, I would say certainly above 50% of the time, I do not have elbow-knee connection. Really interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't think Leandro does either. It, it just depends on uh, the the circumstance of the situation. Now, the idea that, okay, if the elbow and knee is connected, then, and the leg is on the outside, it cannot go through to chase an omoplata or triangle, right? Because the elbow and knee is connected and there's no way to kind of phase through that situation. Like you're, the leg is stuck on the outside. But then the De La Hiva hook might become strong, Right. Now, that, that, again, that's more what I would call like specific situation. In collar sleeve, elbow and knee being connected will protect the omoplata, right? In a specific situation. But in collar ankle, the elbow knee connection, I think is really bad. You want the leg straight. So that, that's what I think about more in terms of always specific situations, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like there's almost more in common about rugby and football then there is escaping mount and doing a triangle choke. Like they're so different. When you really think about escaping mount, what does it have in common with like completing a triangle choke? It's such a different skill set, right? So it's hard to imagine like how those two, I mean, other than like athleticism uh, and, you know, and like being fit and stuff, there's very little in common with those two like skill sets, right? So by defining rather, uh, you know, okay, in this position, these are the things that tend to work and like always being specific in the information and knowledge because, and again, like I'm, I'm being a bit harsh on principles because principles is a broad idea, right? Like you could say often when the guy is tight with his elbows, it's easier to off balance, right? That, that's mm-hmm. generally a true idea. And like you said, not always, but it does function as a good guideline that maybe will creatively when I'm struggling in a situation, I may remember that idea and like, well, it's hard to submit him here. Maybe I could find an off balance somewhere and that can function as a useful guide to help me think creatively. And that's where I would like principles more. But like you said, I think people misinterpret that to mean like, you know, always do, you know, do it this way or always have your elbow knee tight. But like, I find that that has pros and it has cons, but I think for the majority of people, it is a con. I see so many people approaching, passing the guard, locked in their head that their elbow and knee have to be connected and they look like a robot. And then they, they're mm-hmm. stuck. And I'm like, dude, just push his leg down. 
they're like, put the elbow and it's like, just push the leg down. It's fine. You know? So like, Mm -hmm. as soon as you drop those restrictions, the whole game opens up and you become free. I think a lot of that comes down to when people, uh, again, they're getting dogmatic about these ideas where they think it always applies. Like an elbow knee connection is great if you're trying to prevent your opponent from extracting your arm, extracting your leg, or putting something against your hip or your stomach. But if you're not in a body position where that is relevant, then there's really no need for an elbow knee connection, right? Right. That's why, like, when. So that's the hard, I think that's the hard thing is that. It's the nuance, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the nuance, right? And so to the person learning, they won't preemptively know what the behavior that made that valid or not valid is, right? Yeah. The way that I like to describe these things is, uh, you know, part of the reason why our show is called uh, BJJ Mental Models instead of BJJ Principles is because a principle is usually prescriptive of behavior. Like if I'm saying, if I'm Mm -hmm. putting forth a principle, I'm saying like, here's how you should behave. Whereas a mental model is more like a general block of knowledge. And when it comes to something like an elbow knee connection, if I'm going to explain that, and I found that to be a very, very helpful teaching tool, it's it certainly made me better and a lot of my students better, but I prefer to discuss it in the matter of, hey, here's a particular mechanical way your body can work. I prefer to yeah. describe it that way than to say, as a principle, you must always connect these two. Because if you do that, then like you said, you encourage that dogmatic yeah. thinking. And I think it's better to, as you mentioned earlier in the show, to present this information objectively so that your student does yeah. not think that you're like giving them a decree about what, what they must always do and how things must always be. The only principle that I'm fully believing that it kind of exists in all situations is the alignment concept. Submitted. Well, don't get submitted is great, but the, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know What's if you're idea? familiar with Rob Bernanke, but the alignment concept of posture structure base, which is kind of, it's what our system is kind of based all around. And at first it sounds uh, almost oversimplistic and, and kind of rigid, but you bring up the example of if I take my strongest base and I posture fully up, then I could be susceptible to a Kyle lock, right? Like that's, sure. that's very true. Um, so what, the way that uh, Rob has sort of found flexibility in his definitions and he's able to use posture structure base to define all, all situations, but remain flexible is he basically says, okay, posture structure base is relative to your goals. So for example, you know, if, if I take the strongest base and I have this like big staggered stance and then my opponent comes in, he Kyle locks me. Yes, I was in base, but it exposed my foot. Whereas, you know, I, I could turn a certain way and hide my foot from the ankle lock, yet I could still be in base because base is relative to my goals. So maybe my goal is not to stand up as tall as I can. Or maybe a better example would be like, okay, my opponent takes reverse Delahiva on me and they're starting to go kiss of the dragon. Well, one thing I could do to shut down the space in between my legs is I could drop to my hip uh, as long as I have control of the free leg. But I, I am sitting down, but that doesn't mean I'm out of base because A, my opponent can no longer easily go under me and B, I could still get back up. Like I'm still able to drive force if I want to, it's but, not like I've, it's not like I sat down and now I'm not, I'm not able to get back up again, or I've, I've conceded the, the bottom position. So, so my, my thought with that, not to be like a bit annoying about it, but it's just like my honest perception of like how my mind sees jujitsu is that I think all of those decisions are being made based out of a knowledge of that position. Right. So I don't think the, the structure of, 
Like you can only know that if you know that situation, right? So, cause what you're looking for is like a guide kind of when you're role, like, that's what people are a- asking for when they're asking, generally when people are asking for principles, like some sort of guide to help, to help them like know how to go forward. Right. But if you're thinking in general, yeah, I want to have base, then you get hit with the Kyotera ankle lock. You only know about that because you understand the structure that when you're in De La Hiva, the Kyotera ankle lock is something that is available, right? So to me, the, the core thing is understanding the structure of these, the, all these different mechanics in depth and with great depth so that you can make uh, appropriate choices. But like, for example, when I knee cut, I, I have, uh, and I don't know precisely what people mean by the word alignment. So this could be a semantic thing, but when I'm knee cutting, my lower body and my upper body are rotated in the complete opposite direction, right? Like my knee, my right knee is going to the left and my upper body is rotated extremely far to the right. So they're completely counter uh, rotation, right? So to me, when I'm looking for a guiding tool, I have found that the more kind of things I'm trying to follow, it actually starts to stifle my ability because I might start thinking, well, you know, I need to be kind of in... And again, I don't know what they mean by alignment. So I'm not suggesting that necessarily that's what they mean by this. But yeah. but like if I'm looking for something like, well, I need my body to be in alignment. I want my vertebrae in alignment. That may throw out that mechanic choice of rotating my upper body. And Very then that good. may actually block me from learning a, me- a mechanic that is extremely useful. Basically, I guess the way that we would chalk that up is, uh, you know, if you were going to e- execute a technique where your hips are turning one way and your shoulders are turning the other way. Yes, that is throwing out the alignment of the, you know, of your spinal column. However, you're doing it of your own choice. So if you're doing it of your own choice, that's different from your opponent imposing that upon you. So you could say being stacked breaks your posture because your opponent has a stack pass. They're putting pressure, compression on your, your spinal column. But you could also completely go upside down and still have posture because if you choose to do that, if you choose to invert or whatever, Technically, you are in a position where your spine is not straight but, and, and you're breaking that rule, but it is relative to your goal and it's not being imposed upon you by your opponent. So what you're talking about here, John, and I think this is a, a fascinating problem that people have trouble getting their heads around is balancing high-level concepts versus low-level concepts. So basically like the big lofty ideas versus the details. And in order to be truly successful at something, you need to kind of have those both at the same time. And, And I think the mistake that a lot of people make when they're talking about big ideas like principles or concepts is they think that, man, if I just only knew the concepts, then I'd be 100% awesome at this. But the reality is you got to roll up your sleeves and actually do the work and do jujitsu, right? It's like the example I give is like, imagine you've got a a baby and you want to teach it to speak English. Are you going to sit down and like lecture the baby about the rules of grammar? No, you're going to give the baby a word and then a bigger word and then a bigger word. And eventually at some point you can start introducing the concepts. And I think the same thing applies here, which is that all of the concepts in the world don't mean a thing if you don't have practical detailed experience so that you can actually see how these things relate and so that you can understand the exceptions. Like alignment is a great example, right? Alignment, yeah, sure, it talks about all of the right ways to control your body, but there's times when you might want to violate that, right? Like if you're desperate, if you're down on points, you might want to do something like a flying 
arm bar, or you might want to bait your opponent with a submission. These kinds of things require breaking alignment in the goal of manipulating your opponent or getting a flash win. And those are valid strategies, right? So I think when people get too overly committed to big ideas, sometimes they forget that like rules are made to be broken. And something that you talked earlier about is being bound by rules. And Bruce Lee has this amazing quote where he says something to the effect of obey the rules without being bound by them. And I think that's a great way to think about it, right? Which is like, these things are guideposts. They, they're helpful in a lot of times as general concepts, but they're not applicable 100% of the time. They're a good guidepost, but at some point you've got to understand when it's time to go off the path. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, principles, fun- like, uh, again, depends on what people mean by principles, but the, those kind of principles, like alignment, structure, they're more interesting from a after fact observational thing to me rather than a guide like if someone were to do like a uh like a bjj scout breakdown of me sparring they would probably notice all of these things going on and try to abstract principles from it where like they would be like oh john kind of always has this leg structure that uh, creates you know but in my experience and my lived experience it would just be, I'm in collar sleeve. In collar sleeve, I know he can do this, he can do this, he can do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. I'm in double sleeve. I can do... So it's like, for me in my head, like someone, if they look at me on top, they're like, man, John's balance is insane, right? He must just have like principles for balance that are so... No, I just, I know every grip that the guy has and I know exactly where to put my foot and when and why. And I know every detail to like everything that I do. It is all exact with reason, right? Mm -hmm. And... So if someone like were to do kind of almost like a scholarly observation of my game on a macro level from a distance, they might notice something like, oh, his foot is always in this alignment with his leg. But like, actually, I didn't arrive at that from that format of understanding. I arrived at that from uh, understanding individual positions, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that to me to make someone progress it is the most useful way because you always have to, anytime you give these rule, these hard rules, you have to give so many caveats. It gets confusing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think that, principles are very powerful as a tool for reflection. Right. Because to yeah, your point, exactly. without, without having something to reflect upon, if I just tell someone a principle, it's kind of hard for them to actually visualize how that comes into play. They don't have the firsthand experience to really know what it applies to, and they might read it the wrong way. Whereas if you've been doing something particularly, and then someone comes out and points out to you that, hey, you did this, and here's how that ties into other things, then that can lead to a lot of really powerful breakthrough moments. But without the detailed hands-on experience, principles are generally kind of lacking in value. Yeah. The first point in agreement, I think, is that they usually, I think if you use the word usually with most all principles, that will help because it's like not always, right? Um, But they usually function better as creative considerations. Like, okay, I'm trying to attack in this position and it's hard to get a submission. Often when it's hard to get like a submission, like an arm bar or a triangle choke, then they're more out of balance. Often, not always, but often that's a thing, you know, so you may, it may help like, Oh yeah, it's worth considering, you know, that like may help you creatively. But I think, and I really want to harp on this that I think, you know, uh, it seems like when you guys talk about these, you're always giving that caveat with people to understand this is just more like a guideline, but to a lot of people, it's not just 
uh, in my opinion, not helpful. I think it can be the most damaging thing. It's like not just zero, it's negative because Interesting. of the situation. Yeah, but again, that's, that's again, you guys are giving the caveat of like consideration because people like uh, the passing is one of the easy ones I can always point to is like people walk into the guard like they're a robot and they're like stuck with their elbow knee tight and they're kind of like, you can see it's like restricting them. Whereas when they just learn an individual position like collar sleeve or double sleeve or collar ankle and like they just start with that grip set and they just learn kind of what can happen in that grip set. Okay, I have collar ankle. Oh, when I'm here, he can esteem lock me. When I'm here, I can get knee cut pass. When I'm here, I can knock him over. And all these weird abstract things start to come together. And then you start to notice how they all fit. You notice how the ankle lock, the balance, and all these weird things that are completely uniquely, you know, set for that grip set, you start to understand. And then you really have depth of understanding. And then you tackle each position, and then that starts to combine it all together, right? And, and like, to me, it's almost analogous, like looking for principles that connect baseball, swimming, and uh, like skydiving, right? Like what would be the connecting principle there, right? And I feel like maybe that's more different than, you know, jujitsu, but like, the, I don't know what connecting principles there would be with mount escape and finishing a triangle joke. It's hard to find it for me. Mm-hmm. So I find... There is some for sure. Like if you keep your head up, like, you know, versus like down, probably your balance might be a bit better, but there's probably also- a But not always. Where, there's tons of exceptions to that, right? Yeah, exactly. So that, that's why like, you know, and again, that's like a usually thing, right? But again, that's why I think it's interesting to me sometimes to notice those macro trends from an mm-hmm. after perspective, but uh, usually in the process of getting someone to understand something, it's usually case specific. Like my guard retention got so good. And I realized this kind of retroactively was I started in judo and in judo, the only time they let us do grappling, which is what I really wanted to do was when we did pin escapes. So in judo, they have different types of pins. Like they have like Kesagatami, Yoko Shiokatami, Tami Shiokatami. Like you have all these different pin variations. So I developed very good mechanics of getting out of each different pin. And when I switched to jujitsu, I think that's largely what led to me having good guard retention because I had good patterns for every parameter that someone could put me in, you know, and again, I'm not trying to like knock all principles. There is principles that are true, but be very careful with them because for a lot of people, they can become very restrictive and hold them back. Yeah. I think that, that, like I said earlier, that's kind of why I prefer the term mental models because it's, it's better, I think, to describe the mechanics or the strategy of how something works and just be like, Hey, these are how arm joints work (laughs) versus trying to like provide guidance to say like, always do this in this particular way. That's a good point. Like understanding how an arm joint works, that uh, is actually specific, right? But that's useful, right? If you understand how like model is, like you said, is a good word, right? Like if you understand how the arm joint works, right? You understand that. Then when you're, you understand how, you know, uh, an arm bar works, like if you actually didn't understand how an arm bar, uh, how an arm joint works, then when someone shows you an arm bar, you're like, well, you know, why does that matter? 
right? Like, you mm -hmm. know, it matters because you understand that the arm joint doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, a very simplistic example, but of course you can scale that up to more complexity. You I know, it's, it's a great it, example. Yeah. yeah it, well, it's interesting. There's this awesome uh, website called Farnham Street and they talk about all of these different like models for thinking. And the one that they harp on as being the most important is to understand that the map is not the territory. And what they mean by that is like, okay, this mental model that we're giving you is an idea, but it won't always manifest exactly like this in reality. And the idea is still helpful, just like a map is still helpful, but it's not 100% accurate to the actual ground it's representing, right? There's differences. Yeah, yeah. And it's very much the same in jujitsu where like, yeah, we have these mental models and, and these concepts that we can talk about, but on the ground, you still need to have that freedom of thought where you're, you can pivot and make decisions that might violate these rules when it makes sense. Now, oh, yeah, um, I guess sure. I have a closing thought here. We've talked so far about like the different tools we can give people to adopt new tactics, um, how principles play into that versus actually getting on the ground and using techniques. I'd like to turn it the other way around and ask from the standpoint of an instructor, what can you do or what should you do to make it easier for your students to learn new tactics when maybe they're entrenched in a particular game plan and they're kind of in a rut, they're not learning new things? Are there any tricks or hacks that as an instructor you can provide that would help other instructors make their students better learners? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that question uh, is almost beyond jujitsu. It, it's a, like whenever you're talking about like uh, formatting classes and teaching and stuff, it becomes very complicated because it depends on the goals. Like if the goal is to make the class like financially profitable so more people show up versus create like uh, good competitors versus create people who, you know, are something in between and like, it's, it all depends. Right. So I'll tell you how I run my class and my goals. And then you can uh, take from that what you will. For me, most really high level competitors I see are not made by their coach. They are built by themselves. If you look at Autos HQ, almost all of the competitors from Autos HQ are not from Autos HQ. Right. Like I, I can't even name one, right. They're all from another gym. Right. And usually what happens is people get motivated in their, like, in, like, the, like me, I started at a gym, it, you know, it was not like a, a modern high level competition gym. There was no open guard really taught. I taught it all to myself, won the Pan Ams and then moved myself, you know, I seeked it out. Right. So because that's kind of the view I have about it, I try to create my classes with a very open environment so people can come in and work on technique as long as they want. If they want to push hard, you know, then we have time set at the end where they can set up rounds to push hard with people that want to push hard. But I leave a lot of flexibility and open room for people to pursue what makes them passionate because it's different for different people. If I set the class up to like push hard, then like certain people are coming and they want to train three days a week and they get sick of it. And then like other people want to push hard, you know? So I try to leave the, the openness. I really utilize speeches with the class a lot. That's super important. If you train with my guys, they all like, you know, hear me talk all the time about they need to seek out their own understanding, use me as a, as a guide to help them understand these positions, but they're all on their own quest to understand these positions, right? So whenever someone is like, you know, in a rut in their game, I'm always defining, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what, like, what position do you not understand? Like, you know, and then I may pick a, a topic for them if, I, if they're struggling figuring out how their whole game fits together. I'm like, oh, well, you know, if you had a double sleeve, that would help your game a lot. So let's work on double sleeve for a month. And then I'll give them some content. I might send them some video on it. And then they'll work on it for a bit. And then they pursue their own pursuit. But I have a very much a 
like a, a hands-off approach with my students where I'm there, I give them ideas, but then I like kind of more act as a guide and let them pursue the positions they need to work on. And if they need advice on what position they should work on, I give it to them. And then I, I help them out with their questions in class. Yeah, I think that's a really, really awesome point, which is that a lot of the time these overly structured classes, they don't really give students the freedom to choose their own path. I mean, I, I've never yeah. liked that where you, it's like the instructor comes in and it's like, we drill these techniques and then we do exactly this and then that's it. I also like what you talked about regarding the importance of using speeches. And I think this is something that is underutilized. I think for some reason people frown on this, but I think it's actually tremendously valuable for the instructor to spend some time, both at the start and at the end of class to talk Absolutely. And, to, and to explain Absolutely. ideas, build a dialogue with the students. That in a lot of ways is far more valuable than the actual time you spend drilling techniques. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah your job I, is to set the culture, you know, like yeah. if I set the culture, like, you know, you guys never lose, you know, like, you know, never fucking tap, never. You, you can like create a, like a Cobra Kai culture at your gym, you know, mm -hmm. we're like, well, we don't tap. And like people get their arm cracked and stuff. And that's going to create a certain culture. If you create a culture of like, Hey, we're all really into understanding jujitsu specific training. And you create a culture around self understanding and understand that you have a responsibility. Again, this is for more advanced people. I don't do this with people who it's like their first day. I'm not like, well, you know, figure it out. You know, I, I, you have like a certain intro level where you get them up to speed on like, you know, fundamental controls. Uh, but then beyond a certain point in the more advanced group, then it starts to become giving them more of this openness. And I'm always instilling in them the importance of them self-developing and like pursuing their own spots of confusion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, John, thank you. That was a fantastic chat. I really appreciate your time. Any closing thoughts before we tie this up? No, it was really good talk. I think it was really good. The uh, conversation we got into with, you know, principles and all that. I think that was a very great topic. I don't know how much I've talked about that before. So I think it was excellent. Absolutely. It was great to connect. I know Matt wants to chat again in the future, so hopefully we can make that happen. Uh, ahead, I just want to say, uh, I just want to say, John, I really appreciate it. I, I didn't even get a chance yeah, to to thank you um, for the work that you've done because uh, I wanted to actually discuss it, but it's just the conversation just flew by. You're, you're cool. kind of uh, integral in how I sort of relearned how to play the gi even because I spent much of my brown, brown belt years learning no gi mostly. And then when I went back to the gi, uh, I never left the gi, but when I started, you know, thinking, okay, I got to focus on the gi now that I'm a black belt, I realized, hey, my engagement phase grip fighting concepts are really not where, where they should be. And so I look to you for a lot of that. And, uh, oh, I, I really I'm appreciate it here, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah talking like I, no I, I, at some point would be very interesting as well. Cause I, it's like, I, I don't know if it's more or less complicated. I, I think it's, it's super complicated it's a good because debate, you don't have all right? the grips. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it's super interesting. Yeah. Now, before we tie this up, any plugs, is there anything that, is there anywhere that uh, people yeah. can go if they want to see your content? Yeah, you can check me out uh, on Instagram at John Thomas BJ on YouTube John Thomas BJJ, uh, and then DM me. I do online coaching and stuff like that. If anyone's interested, they can DM me on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And you also just released a new instructional, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I released one through uh, Stephen Testing, uh, like Open Guard Concepts. I have one on the Grappler's Guide. Uh, I have a couple on the Grappler's Guide. I have a discount code there. It's, I think it's J Thomas on there. And then I also have one through BGJ Fanatics as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, John, again, I, I thank you so much for your time. This was a super valuable chat for me, probably will be for our listeners too. So thanks again, everyone, for your attention. Talk to you next time.